Let me paint a picture first, um, because this is one of those stories in John chapter 13 where what we see happening is happening, but there's really a bigger thing happening. It's, it's kind of a this is really that scenario. He does this, but this is really that, and I'll, I'll explain in a moment, but in order to get it, we have to understand the context of why Jesus did what he did in this passage. The disciples are coming into Thursday night of the last week, and I, I know this is getting confusing because now we're kind of backtracking a few hours from where we're at in the Gospel of Mark, but as they are entering into the upper room to have the Last Supper, which is all kind of tied together in what we've discussed through our study in Mark, as they're entering into it, for the third time in Jesus' ministry, the disciples are having the same argument, and the argument is simply this, of the 12 of us, who's the greatest? Who's the best? Who's Jesus' favorite? Whatever the argument consisted of or the root of it that spurred that conversation, the argument is happening for the third time. The third time Jesus has to interject himself into this situation and say, you guys don't get it. Greatness in you, the, what you're talking about does not exist in my kingdom. It's about the one who will become the servant of all. He's done this multiple times. So in this particular case, he decides instead of verbally chastising them, to show them what greatness really is. He decides to give them a visual demonstration of greatness, and that's where we pick up in John chapter 13, verses 3 through 5. Jesus knew that the Father, God, had put all things under his power. Please understand that that is the conscious thought of Jesus as he enters into the next act. He knew and was confident and assured that all power had been given to him by God. That's a bunch of power. That's a lot. That's something to boast about. He knew that he had not only come from God, but that he was returning to God. The plan was signed, sealed, and delivered. He took on flesh, came to earth in the form of a baby, lived a perfect, sinless life, started ministry three years prior to this, taught and commanded his disciples to do everything that they needed to do to live perfectly in the kingdom of God. He knew that his time here was wrapping up, that he'd come from God, he was going back to God, he knew that he had all power and all authority that existed in the heavenly realms and in the universe, and in light of that, we get verse 4. So just see the paradox here. I have everything. I am everything. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing. That would have been not just a coat. That would have been like me taking off this shirt and my pants. Now, I'm not going to do that because there's laws. But if I did that, okay, if I did that, it would not be as offensive as you might think because I have on an undershirt and some Short type things. We call underwear. But anyway, they're like shorts. Now you would think that's weird if I stood up here in that, but I would not be grotesque or wrong or exposing anything. That's what he did. He took off his outer clothing. He had on his underwear, which was even more covering than our underwear is. And then he picked up a towel and wrapped it around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash all of his disciples' feet 
as he washed them, he dried them with a towel. That Actually, it was the towel that was wrapped around him. Picture this. The man upon which all authority in heaven and earth had been given. The Son of God. In order to show his foolish disciples what greatness truly is, instead of another sermon, he simply stands up and begins to unclothe himself, which would have got their attention. He picks up a towel, wraps it around his waist, gets a bowl, fills it with water, and then walks over to the very first one, probably sitting at the very end of the table, the lowliest seat at the dinner, and he gets down on one knee and he takes the dude's sandal off, which would have been gross because they were in Palestine, which had dirt roads, pulls the sandal off and dips that man's foot in water, washes off the dirt, pulls his foot up, takes the towel from his leg, dries it off, and then does the other one. I want you to make sure you're picturing this because that job of washing feet was customary at dinner parties. It was kind of considered kosher for the lowliest slave in the home to wash the feet of all those who came in to dine with you because they were dirty and no one wants to sit and eat a nice meal with filthy sandy feet. So the lowliest slave would do that. Now it appears that no one had done so on this night. Jesus seen an opportunity to teach something greater than just cleanliness walks over and washes that first guy's feet. Let's say that was James. And then he goes to John and does the same thing. Then he goes to Judas, not the one who's going to betray him. But then he goes to the Judas Iscariot, the one who will betray him, and he washes his feet. Can you imagine how awkward that was? Jesus knows you're going to betray me here in a few hours. Judas knows I'm going to betray him here in a few hours. Yet this man's washing my feet. Can, are you picturing this? Are you there yet? Are, are you in this upper room? Jesus was demonstrating an act of service. Even though he was the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. If anything, in this party, Jesus should have had his feet washed. That's how it should have gone down. But that's not how it went. He washed their feet. And he wasn't just doing it as an act of service, although there was definitely that component. He was also doing it as a picture of forgiveness. We know that from the next few verses, 6 through 11. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I think he said it with reluctance in his voice. You, you, you're going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. So Jesus comes right out of the gate with Peter and goes, You've got some problems understanding things. You, you've shown this over the course of our time together. You do not get this now, but later you will fully understand. That's not sufficient for Peter because I don't think Peter listens. No, said Peter. You'll never wash my feet. There's a lot of times where I read Peter's stupidity and I don't understand it. In this case, I do. He's the one guy that said, no, this is wrong. This is not how this is supposed to be happening, and you will not wash my feet. And I, I don't think he was yelling. I think he was determined to stop this man whom he loved from doing something so lowly to him. I think that was, I think that was genuinely the heart of Peter. This isn't going to happen. This is not going down this way. You're never, ever, ever going to wash my feet. 
Yet Jesus answers, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked into a different type of a message here, but that phrase is important. Because initially, if you're just reading that, you're going, okay, unless I wash you, that makes no sense. And then you might jump to the idea of baptism. Okay, so maybe Jesus is alluding to baptism here. Unless you are baptized, then you can have no part with Jesus. I I think we can make that jump, but we need to be careful because we need to understand that once again, he's not referring to the physical act of baptism. Unless I dip you in water and pull you back up out of water, you can't have anything to do with me. Because in the Old and the New Testament, there were symbols that represented belonging to God. In the Old Testament, that symbol was circumcision. If you were circumcised, you belonged to God. If you were uncircumcised, you did not belong to God. In the New Testament, that symbol became baptism. So if you were baptized, it symbolized that you belonged to God. However, in both cases, the heart was far more important than the body. And what I mean by that is circumcision and its new counterpart, baptism, were about a devote and faithful service to the Lord. And if that was your heart, then you did this physical act to tell the world, I am his and he is mine. But it came as a result of the heart. It came as a result of a desire to be known as his. And when Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me, he's not saying, if you get some water thrown on you, you're good. He's saying there has to be heart transformation. There has to be be something spiritually that occurs within you, and I, through the Holy Spirit, will do that cleansing and that washing, and at the end of that, if you so decide to be baptized, great, it will be an indicator to the rest of the world that you are mine and I am yours. But the cleansing and the washing, it takes place on a spiritual level and on a heart level. And when Jesus says, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me, that is a very, very true statement. Unless he's done a heart transformation in you through the Holy Spirit, you have no part with him. Peter, not understanding, said this, well, if that's the case, Lord, don't just wash my feet. Get my hands, get my head also. I'm going to need a full-on shower. You're going to need some more water and a couple more towels. Because if you need to wash me for me to be a part of you, I want in. I'll, I, I choose yes. So let's do this. Get these dirty hands and this nappy head. Just go ahead and do it. Once again, Peter does not understand. So Jesus says, those who have had a bath, I think that's important for us to understand, those who have been spiritually cleansed, those who are in Jesus, only need to wash their feet. Their whole body is already clean because the work of Jesus Christ is sufficient for all. I love this. And this is what tells me for sure that it was not baptism in the literal sense that Jesus was talking about because he says, and by the way, Peter, you're clean. You're in. You're stupid, but I know your heart. <laughs> you, talk, you talk way too much, but I know your heart. You're going to disown me three times in the next 12 hours, but I know your heart. So is that not a little refreshing, church? Because how often do you go, like, I'm stupid, I talk too much, I, I, I have to hurt him so much. But he's like, but I know you, you're clean. It, I, I, you, deep down, even though you mess up all the time, your heart's mine. Uh, to me, that's just encouraging. But then Jesus does add, and I wonder 
where Judas was sitting in the room when Jesus said this. It's a dialogue between he and Peter, but he says, though not every one of you is clean, for he knew who was going to betray him. And John does not distinctly say in this passage that it's Judas, but he lets us know that Jesus was fully aware of who the betrayer was. And that is why he said not everyone was clean. Jesus' entire life, his ministry, the cross, which we'll get to in a few weeks, it was all about doing for others. That was That was a ribbon that was tied around the life of Jesus. Now, there's a greater ribbon that is tied around the life of Jesus, and that is the glory of God. We'll talk about that a lot in the next two weeks. But there is a ribbon that it ties around and encompasses the entire life of Jesus, and that is that his life, his ministry, and even the works of the cross were all about others. The theological implications of his life and his service were that some who believed in him would be cleansed. Now, the reason I say some is because not all will believe. I'm not saying some who believe will be, some who believe won't be. All who believe in Jesus will be cleansed, will be washed, will be set free from their sin. All who believe in him because the work of the cross is sufficient for all. However, not all will believe. Scripture is very clear about that. That's why we have to take today very seriously because not all are just blindly taking this. There, there, there's some out there who are saying, I don't want it, I don't need it, I don't whatever. And that's our job then to go convince them of their need for Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God's grace will do that for us but we need to be the mouthpiece of that grace and that Holy Spirit. You don't have to be perfect to be cleansed. You just have to follow Him. Peter couldn't understand all of this at this point, but the act of Jesus washing his feet symbolized what laying down his life would produce. A clean heart. A clean person. Hear this, church. Jesus is willing to wash the feet of everyone. But not everyone in here is clean. Just... Just hear that for its grace and not its condemnation. Jesus is willing to wash everyone's feet just like he did on that night. I bet he washed Judas Iscariot's feet, but Judas Iscariot was not in. He was not clean because his heart was far from him and divided. And I know that in a room this size, there are some like that who are far and divided. And Jesus says, I'll wash your feet. But not everyone is clean. That takes you allowing him to come into your heart and to do the transformation that is necessary for him to be Lord. Him to be everything. Finally, in this passage, washing feet is a picture of the future. More specifically, what we are to do in light of having our feet washed. Verses 12 through 17 When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Then he asked the question, do you understand what I have done for you? I love that he asked this question because he just told Peter, there's no way you can understand what I'm doing for you. So he asked it to start a conversation. The answer is no. In everyone in the room, do you understand what I just did? Of course you don't. Let me explain. Okay? 
He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and it is right for you to do so. I am your Lord. I am your teacher. I am everything. All authority under heaven has been given to me. All power. I am from God. I'm returning to God. You should call me teacher. You should call me Lord, for that is what I am. And now that I am your Lord and I am your teacher, I've washed your feet. I am at the top. There is no one higher than me. Yet I did for you what the lowest of the low are supposed to do. You also then should wash one another's feet. Because I've set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, now that I've learned you up, you will be blessed if you do them. I don't want to go into what this blessing looks like. Because in all honesty, it's huge. It is the blessing of forgiveness. It is the blessing of grace. It is the blessing of provision. It is the blessing of joy and peace and hope. It is the blessing of life. It is the blessing of a purpose and a plan. It is a blessing that goes on so, so substantially and further than we can ever possibly imagine that, that we can't even start to understand what this blessing is. But what unleashes this blessing is for us to step out of what this world says to be true, that we have to be the greatest, diminish to the point of being the servant of all, and when we see and know ourselves to be just that, because that is what God became for us, when we get that, then we will step into a blessing that can only be released when we do that. Now, there are other blessings that can be unleashed without you doing this. I, I, that's true. But this blessing, this enormous spiritual blessing that comes from becoming the servant of all, that's one that we want and need and we strive for, but we usually do not attain because this world tells us it's stupid to act that way. Just look out for yourself. When Jesus says that we should wash one another's feet, this is not a command. He is not pointing us to a single act of service. He's not saying take off someone's shoes and start wetting their feet down. Okay, That's not what he's saying to do. He is pointing us to a lifestyle of service, an attitude of service. It's an attitude of placing others' needs ahead of our own. Not just when we think about it, but always. I might be higher than you in the organizational chart of our company, but I place your needs and your wants ahead of my own. I might be your father, and you might be my child, but one of the ways that I can love you is by placing your needs ahead of my own. I might be whatever, and you might be whatever. You want to talk about the people that are going to the rescue mission here in a few hours? You want to know how hard that's going to be for them? I might be a PhD, and you are homeless. But my love for God and his love for me tells me that I should put your needs ahead of my own that I should serve you and not the other way around. And we do this on a constant basis, not just because we're on a mission trip. <laughs> Jesus believed that because he had done this for us, we should do it 
for others. Why is it so hard? Because our fallen nature speaks to doing the exact opposite. Instead of, use, instead of serving people, we are taught to use people for gain and to get what we want. Jesus is calling us to do the lowliest tasks on this earth, the kind of tasks that no one else will do because their pride will not allow it. And he's saying to do this because his kingdom is backwards. If we are going to be subject to him, if he is going to be our king, then we need to understand that in his kingdom, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, the weak are the ones who are strong, the powerless are actually powerful, and the greatest of all will be the one who serves the most. And man, I know you get that, and you're just like, yep, amen. But do you get that? In light of how you'll wake up and live tomorrow, do you get that? As Nick comes back up here, I want you to hear this. Those who have put their faith in Jesus have been cleansed, washed, and set free from their sin. Your faith has initiated that grace, and you are clean. But this process of cleansing has also set forth for you a model for life, a model for how you are to live as one who's been forgiven, one who has been cleansed. This model was depicted that night in that upper room by Jesus and that model, it's backwards from what we're taught, but it points people back to the servant of all, Jesus. That's ultimately why we're called to serve everyone. We're called to do this because when we do that for them, they see Jesus in us. When you take someone's basic need and when you meet it, they see Jesus. The season of Easter, you will receive no less than 16 beautiful, full-color invitations in your mailbox from 16 churches in your zip code inviting you to come to Easter. You probably will have someone knock on your door and tell you you should come to this church or that for Easter services. Someone in your office will probably invite you to church. I'm going to be really careful how I say this. Do me a favor. Don't invite anyone to come to church here on Easter. Instead, take that effort and look how you can meet one of their needs. That, per that person you're going to meet, it's so easy to put a card in someone's mailbox. It's a lot harder to go knock on their door and start a relationship that says, I care about you more than I care about myself. Because here's the deal, like, if, if you do that, we won't have enough seats on Easter. We won't. So, so I'm not going to spend 5000 of your dollars mailing this zip code. I'm going to send you out to go wash feet. And if you do it, the return's going to be much greater. This season's all wrapped up in telling people about Jesus. Go show them Jesus. They don't got to come here for that. You go show them. Go show them who Jesus is this season. As we respond today, I want your prayer and the prayer of this entire body to be one thing. Pray, God, show me who and show me how you want me to serve.
Show me who you want me to serve and show me how you want me to serve them. You're going to have to show me because it's not the way I'm wired. It's not what I'm just going to do naturally. My, my flesh and my sin are going to get in the way. So God, show me who, show me how. I want that to be the unanimous prayer of every person in this room who through faith has put their heart and their trust in Jesus Christ. Show me who and show me how. Pray that your heart will be humbled in light of God and the fact that he came to serve you. He became nothing for you. Let your heart be humbled by that so that pride doesn't get in the way and stop you from doing what we're called to do. Go and serve. Our prayer team will be in the back. There's communion set up for you to take. The response time will be the same as it usually is, but I want your prayer to be that. God, show me who and show me how. Show me who and show me how. Humble me so that I'll do it because, God, you did it for me first. That's my motivation. I want to serve you, and I'm going to do that by serving others. God, in the name of Jesus, show us how to serve you by serving others. Show us how to take what you've done for us and make it an attitude and a lifestyle. God, let those who need to know you know you because we look to meet their needs and put their needs and desires and wants ahead of our own. God, may we do that because of you. May we do that through you and through your power. And God, may we do that because you did it for us. Now that I have done it for you, go and do it for others. May those words echo in our hearts as we pray. We love you, God. It's in your name that we ask these things. Amen. As you stand and respond, if you need prayer, a prayer team will back there to pray with you.